0: Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together Ecclesiastes 7, verses 23 to 29. It's on page 663 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along there or else it's on the screen. Ecclesiastes 7, 23 to 29. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find out the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is God's word.
1: An Irish poet once lamented in song... I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's a shout-out to Bono and you, too, if you didn't pick up on that one. And that's a frustrating existence, if you think about it, to give yourself to the pursuit of something that continually eludes you or evades you. You know, whether it's something as simple but annoying as trying to find your car keys when you're already late, and uh, something more significant like chasing a dream that you've always held and yet never finding that opportunity for it, or whether it's some longing in your heart and you don't even have a clue what it is, but you know that if you don't find this, you will never really be satisfied. It's frustrating and discouraging to always be seeking but never finding in life. But then there are sometimes that happy experience when you find something that you weren't looking for. So you're rifling through the pencil drawer for your car keys and you find a $20 bill. You know, that's great. Or, uh, you know, you volunteer for something because they're so desperate and in need of help and then you find in the activity that you've all of a sudden discovered your passion and your life calling in in doing this thing. Uh, But, of course, then not everything that we discover by accident is happy. Uh, Sometimes it's not the $20 bill that you find in the drawer. It's an overdue bill for $200 that you forgot about. Or you go in for a routine physical and you walk out with a heart disease diagnosis. So sometimes we're not looking for stuff and we find it and it's, it's not good. Well, that experience, looking for something that you can't find, but finding something worse in the process, that pretty much describes Solomon's experience in ecclesiastes seven twenty three to 29 and we've been in this book for several months following him as he tries to make sense of how life works under the sun you know, in the realm of our daily experience um uh, you know what we see what we do whether anything that we see and do actually lasts or provides any sort of gain or significance you know he set out in the beginning to find wisdom so to to uh be able to put all of the pieces of life together, figure out how it works, and so therefore know how to make the most of it, how to to find uh, lasting satisfaction in life. But of course, if you've been with us for even just a week or two, you you know that what he's found has not been pleasant. Uh, He's discovered that everything we try and put our hope in, in this life, in this world, uh, is vapor. It's vanity. It's smoke. There's nothing new. There's nothing that lasts, there's nothing that satisfies, and there's nothing that ultimately makes sense in this life apart from God. And so the preacher still hasn't found what he's looking for. He's looking for wisdom, for the scheme of things, but he can't find it. As he says in uh, verses 23 to 24, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So like a ship lost at sea, trying to find its bearings under an overcast sky. You know, you plumb the depths. You you send your, your measuring instruments down into the sea to find out how deep it is where you're at. But they don't touch anything. It's too deep. Or you grab your telescope and you scan the horizon looking for land to see how far out are we. And there's nothing. It's too far off. Now, that's not to say that there isn't land somewhere or that there isn't a bottom at some point. But it's beyond your comprehension. You cannot find it out. You cannot find it out. And so as Solomon has sought to figure out how life works, the scheme of things how it all fits together, he's discovered it's too grand, it's too big, it's too mysterious, it's too amazing for him to take it all in. And so that forces him and really us with him to depend on the God who designed the whole thing, who does know where the edges are and how it fits together and who will be faithful to accomplish his purposes to work it all out. So he can't figure it out. But then Solomon reports to us three things that he has found amid his elusive search for wisdom, what you might call three incidental finds, things that he wasn't looking for but discovered in the process. Uh, And unfortunately, none of them are happy. None of them are, are good discoveries. In essence, if we had to boil it down, what the preacher discovers is that though we can't make sense of the grand scheme of how life works, The one thing we can be sure of is that people are sinners. That's the one thing he has found out, that you can be confident as you walk through this life that you will discover people are sinners. Now, that's not a happy subject. Um, I mean, who wants to spend the next 30 minutes on a Sunday morning thinking about the fact that, you know, you and everyone you love and are sitting next to and trust are all dirty, rotten sinners? It's just, you know, it's not fun. That all humanity has thrown off God's rule and has sought to live life on our own terms, often in direct disobedience to God. That's what we mean, by the way, when we say the word sin. It's a rebellion. It's a disobedience to God and his design, his rule, thinking we would do a better job running things than him. And again, that's not very much fun to think about. But then again, if we think about the rest of this book, uh, most of what Solomon has forced us to interact with hasn't been much fun. You know, we, we've, had, we've come face to face with a lot of the hard realities of life. And it hasn't been fun, but it has been real. It has been honest. It has given voice to many of the frustrations and the quiet wrestlings of our hearts as we go through out life, trying to figure out why isn 't this going the way I planned, so it does resonate with us, even if it 's not fun to think about, and so it might not be such a bad thing after all to think carefully this morning about what does it actually look like, and, and what do we do with the fact that all of humanity is fallen in sin and disobedience it 's crucial. To be honest about this. It's crucial. Lest we're taken off guard by sin's lure. By the way it tries to suck us in and draw us in. Or lest we're devastated when we realize that someone we trust, lo and behold, is actually a sinner too. And we're let down and devastated. But most importantly, unless we're honest about the sinfulness of sin. That it really is. Wrong because God really is that holy. Unless we're honest about the sinfulness of sin, we will never fully grasp the sufficiency and beauty of God's grace. The, the grace of God that deals with that sin, as ugly and tragic as it is, we'll never fully appreciate that unless we are honest about sin. And grace is our only hope for navigating life in a world that does not work the way that it's supposed to. So let's pray together as we look at these verses. Lord, this is a um, dislocating, a a frustrating, maybe even an annoying subject for us to think about this morning. Um, There's some of us here who don't even have a category for why what we do could actually be wrong. There are some of us who spend every day cowering in fear because we feel like everything we do, no matter what, is always wrong. There are some of us who just want guidance and hope. We want to know that even when things aren't working, that you haven't left us in this mess. And so I pray that you would speak to each heart wherever it's at. May you apply the beautiful hope of Jesus as we look at this passage and as we, as we really take a look in the mirror to see ourselves as we are apart from God. May you apply the grace and hope of Jesus to that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we travel through life in a fallen world, again, there's no guarantee that we're going to make sense of everything we experience. But one thing we are guaranteed to find is that people are sinners. That's the, the basic essence of this passage. And there are three specific incidental discoveries that Solomon made while searching for wisdom. In verse 25, he reminds us again of his goal. The whole, thing, the whole purpose that he set out to not just write this book, but to explore the things that he's now recorded in this book. Uh, what has his goal been in, his, in this research project? He says in verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So again, you hear the diligence with which he's really wrestled with life. You know, the, the pile up of those words. I'm trying to know and search out and seek Wisdom. He's not just sitting in an armchair throwing out random thoughts about life and how it works. He's rolled up his sleeves. He's dove in headfirst to wrestle with how this thing works and to try and sort it out, to find the scheme of things, he calls it, the grand design and pattern, both you know, the, what wisdom is and how it benefits us, but then also what's foolish and, and what's folly and madness and, and what liability that brings. We saw, you know, most of chapters 1 through 6 were taken up with this investigation. That's what we saw him do. He took one subject after another, after another, exploring to see how it all made sense and whether or not it was worthwhile. But again, he hasn't found anything. Uh, If you look down at verse 27, where he describes one of the things he did find, he says, Behold, this is what I found while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, you know, my, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. So again, he's, he's out there adding one thing to another. He's trying to paint the big picture. His soul has longed over and over to know this, but he still hasn't found it. Uh, so he's not found the big picture, but well, what then has he found? And that's these three uh, incidental finds, three things in this passage. And the first one is that he found the bitterness of being enslaved to sin. As he walked through life, trying to make sense of it all, one thing he did discover is the bitterness of being enslaved, captured to sin. Verse 25 again. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Well, this description of this woman sounds a lot like the adulteress or the forbidden woman that runs throughout the book of Proverbs, um, who goes on the prowl after young fools trying to enslave them in sin. In Proverbs 7, we read about her. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him, the fool, and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him in a full moon. At full moon, he will come home again. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. Her, with her smooth talk, She compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver or as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. One thing that the preacher has found in his search is the bitterness of being enslaved to sin. Something more bitter than death, as he puts it. Now, uh, Solomon describes this enslavement with the image of the forbidden woman, but I don't want us to be confused at all. Sinful predators come in all genders. So this is not just a, a, a thing that women do. Most Old Testament wisdom literature is written from the vantage of a king giving instruction to his son. And so Solomon is imparting wisdom to his son so he knows how to walk through life. And so a lot of the threats that are described are described relative to young men. And so that's why the imagery works that way. But make no mistake, sin is an equal opportunity employer. Okay, So men are just as prone to this kind of predatory life as women. Sin comes in all shapes and sizes, and it seeks to take us down. The emphasis here, though, is not on the one who commits it, but on how sin works. If we look again at Ecclesiastes 7. Entrapment and enslavement. That's how sin does its thing. Look again at the language. Her heart is snares and nets. Okay, That's what you use to trap an unsuspecting animal. You put out a snare so it steps its foot in and then it jerks tight. You, you put up a net so it flies into it. Her hands are fetters or shackles and chains. That's what you do to trap something that you've already caught, to keep it a prisoner to you. You you lock it up. That's how sin works. So first it lures us. It appeals to us. It even, you know, often tries to get us to... Uh, Express legitimate desires in our hearts, but it goes after. Excuse me. It goes after what are often legitimate desires in our hearts, but it presents to us illegitimate ways of fulfilling those desires. And so, for instance, sexual intimacy—the imagery that's used here in Proverbs seven—you know that's a legitimate desire. That's something God has woven into humanity, but He also provided the proper place for it. In the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And so, you know, God's commands always reflect his purposes. God's commands always reflect his purposes. He has a purpose for sex and for marriage to be a display of our union with Christ. If you look at Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, there's a purpose to it. Sin tempts us to to fulfill that desire in an illegitimate way, to take it outside the bounds of that purpose. And so it entices us to seek that kind of satisfaction, which not only throws off God's rule, but it ruins the purpose. It spoils the picture. It takes it outside of what God has intended it for. So sin lures us. It goes after the longings of our hearts, but it does not stop there. Once it lures us in, it springs its trap. It enslaves us, captures us such that we can't escape. That is Satan's goal, to trap us in sin, to trap us in rebellion and disobedience to God. As Solomon says, the sinner is taken by her, by this forbidden woman. Those who have no regard for God and his ways will quickly and pleasantly fall into the trap. They think they're finally free to experience all they want in life. But as one author describes Their exhilarating sensation of liberty is only temporary. A free fall with death at the end of it. Think of that picture. We think we're free to do what we want and to just unleash our heart's desires and and to throw off what God says or cares about it. And we think we're free. And it's that picture of the exhilaration of a free fall with no parachute and just the ground at the end. That's the picture. But... The one who pleases God escapes her. Again in chapter 7, verse 26. Those who know God and walk according to his ways will find a way out from that temptation. Now that raises a huge question if you were here last week. Because one of the things we saw in verse 20 of the same chapter is that surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So I don't know who this category of the one who pleases God is in this passage, if in fact we're all sinners before the Lord. What hope do we have of fleeing sin, of fleeing temptation, of walking with God, if none of us uh, are righteous? Well, great sinners, such as we are, need an even greater Savior. That's one of the ways that Ecclesiastes launches us forward to the gospel of christ because that's who jesus is a greater savior jesus rescues us from sin in lots of ways but i want to talk about two of them this morning first he rescues us from sin by canceling the debt that we owed to god by canceling the debt that we owe to god our rebellion our sin stirs up god's holy anger that's why it's not okay by the way just to continue going there's a cost there's a punishment god is the one who designed this world he has the right to rule it he has the right to say what's holy and what isn't and as a just and holy judge he must make all things right and punish all things that are wrong so sin has a consequence and our sin stirs up god's anger against us he's the king of heaven when we throw it off off his rule we commit treason against his throne christ stepped into our place as a perfect son who never disobeyed his father, who never threw off God's rule and lived the life we were supposed to live but couldn't, and then stepped into our place again to take the punishment we deserved for that rebellion on himself, to cancel the debt of sin, to wipe the slate clean so that as we stand before God on Judgment Day, his verdict will be not guilty that's what Christ did for us as author Jerry Bridges describes more fully not only has the debt been fully paid there's no possibility of going into debt again for those who trust in Christ Jesus paid the debt of all our sins past present and future as Paul said in Colossians 2:13 God forgave us all our sins We don't have to start all over again and try to keep the slate clean. There is no more slate. Think about that. When we trust in Christ, when he is our hope, there is no more slate. This is true not only for our justification, but for our Christian lives as well. God is not keeping score, granting or withholding blessings on the basis of our performance the score has already been permanently settled by Christ. We need a great Savior, and we have one in Jesus. So Jesus rescues us from sin by canceling the debt. Second, he rescues us from sin's power by giving us his Holy Spirit, who changes our lives to look more like Christ. Just as Jesus resisted temptation... So the Spirit helps us resist it. Think about that. I mean, if I know when I'm faced before something and my heart is longing after it, I am not strong enough to say no. And if I depend on my own strength, I can tell you right now it's not going to be pretty. But we're not left to ourselves. We're not left to ourselves in Christ. That's one of the many reasons He gives us the Holy Spirit, to give us the strength to resist and follow Christ's pattern of holiness. As 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, a lot of us have memorized this verse before. And we, we, we're excited about the fact that we're not left to ourselves in our battle against sin. Do we look for the way out, though? Is our heart set to, on, on the holiness of God and the grace of God such that we're looking for that way out? Or are we trying to get as close as we can without getting burned? In Jesus, there is grace for sinners... And there's shelter from sin's assault. That's the only hope we have in a world like this. So that's the first find that Solomon discovered. uh, That to be enslaved to sin is more bitter than death. The second thing he finds comes in verses 27 to 28. And that's the rarity of a trustworthy friend. The rarity of trustworthy friends. Verse 27 Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So while Solomon didn't find the scheme of things or the mystery of life, he did discover that people are generally untrustworthy, Uh, that in his search for a wise or virtuous person, he found one man in a thousand and no women. Now, why does he say that? You know, wh- why, why does he say that he could find one man in a thousand but not a single woman? I mean, that just sounds rude, if we're honest. Um, I mean, some even would take this to say that he's pretty misogynistic, woman-hating. That's a legitimate question to raise. What in the world's going on here when you run into a verse like this? As we wrestle with this question, we need to keep in mind the whole counsel of God. So the whole testimony of scripture that God made male and female in his image, that they are equal before God. You know, they have complementing roles in the church and in the family, but they are equal and, and one before God in his image. So we need to keep that in mind. Second, I think it's good to observe here that neither men nor women are painted in a positive light. One in a thousand is not much better than none in a thousand, okay? So the picture is dismal any direction you look at it. But, and I think most importantly, we need to recognize that what the preacher is describing here is he's not making a universal claim about how men and women work. He's reporting his investigation. This is what he found in his own investigation. Personal experience and if the preacher is Solomon this makes a lot of sense As one author notes in his own search Solomon had found virtually no men of integrity at his court And in the rest of his study Conducted largely with the lights down low. He found no women of integrity in his harem You know 1,000 women first Kings 11 tells us 700 wives 300 concubines whom the Lord told him not to take because they would turn his heart away from him. The point here is that in this life, be assured that people will let you down, that you will not find a perfect friend or a completely trustworthy person. We are sinners, all of us. That's the point. Now, that's very scary to think about. Um, You know, it's hard to let ourselves trust somebody if we are afraid that they might betray us and betray that trust. We want to live life with our guard up and just kind of keep everybody comfortably at arm's length lest we somehow get hurt in the process. And yet, as we've seen elsewhere in this book, we were made for community with each other. We were made for community. Chapter 4 told us that If we look for lasting gain in our relationships, we will be disappointed. We will be let down. There's only one Savior, and it's not your spouse. It's not your child. It's not your neighbor, your friend, and it's certainly not your pastor. There's only one Savior. But that doesn't mean that we weren't made for each other, that we don't need each other. Again, chapter 4 told us we were made for community. But the only thing that makes community work when everyone involved is a sinner is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that makes community work. In Christ, we can be honest about our fears, about our weaknesses, about the sins that we commit against one another. Because God... God's grace provides an adequate solution to deal with those fears, those weaknesses, those sins. To help us grow in our relationship with God and with others. If Jesus died not only for our sins, but also for the sins committed against us. If his grace not only rescues us from the penalty of our own sin, but gives us strength to love others as he loved us then we can risk relating to one another. We can risk loving and being loved, knowing full well at some point we will be let down, but knowing just as well that Christ will never let us down. As the, uh, one of the old hymns says, foes may hate and friends disown me. God, show thy face and all is bright. Even when we turn our backs on one another and we hurt one another, we know that in Christ we have a friend who will never leave us and who's powerful enough to put those broken relationships back together. In this fallen world, we can be guaranteed to find that enslavement to sin is more bitter than death, that trustworthy friends are hard to find, Finally, in verse 29, we see Solomon's third incidental find and really his summary conclusion to this section. And that's the fact that humanity's rebellion against sin, or excuse me, humanity's rebellion against God is the root of all that's broken in this life. That's the the one thing that he summarizes it all with. Verse 29, see, this alone I found. That God made man upright. God made humanity upright. But they have sought out many schemes. They've sought out many schemes. God did not design humans to live in disobedience to Him. That was something that happened after creation. He certainly made them with the capacity to rebel. But as Solomon wrestled to discover how life works, what's wrong with the world? How do we make sense of it? He found this foundational truth that God made humans upright, morally good. God, when he finished his creation, you'll remember, he said it was very good. He made them in His own image and likeness, which you know expresses both our relationship to God, but also our goal to reflect His holy character. God made humanity good. Sin and rebellion is not the way it's supposed to be. But ever since the beginning, humans have, as the preacher puts it here, we've sought out many schemes. We've sought out many schemes. In other words, you know, since the early hours of creation, we have been plotting our rebellion against God's design. Seeking out many schemes to try and figure out how we can, as it were, take over the world. Take over God's kingdom. Put ourselves on the throne where he alone belongs. Every one of us in the darkest corners of our hearts thinks that in some way we would do a better job running this place than God. We disagree with his decisions. We don't like the way he says some things are good, other things aren't. We would have never caused that trial to happen in our life and so on. We don't like God being in charge. We have been rebels from birth. And so the reason the world doesn't work is not because of a design flaw, but because human sin has messed the whole thing up. God designed this world for life. When we rebelled, we brought on ourselves death. God designed this world that we might find satisfaction in him. When we rebelled, we exchanged him for things that will never satisfy. And so we're left wandering. He designed this world for peace, for shalom, for wholeness. Sin has brought strife and brokenness. The fracturing of our lives, of our relationships, of our bodies, of our societies, and most importantly, of our relationship with God. But again, the story doesn't end there. God has not left us. To pick up the consequences of our decisions by ourselves. Instead, what we have spoiled in our sin, God is putting back together in Christ. Jesus followed God's design perfectly. He never sought to establish a kingdom for his own purposes, his own design, and just throw off his father's desires and so he, therefore, was the only one qualified to stand in our place before God. And because he's God's eternal son, he's the only one qualified to conquer sin and death through the cross and resurrection. Jesus secured victory over sin through the cross. We see that in part now. We see it as we talked earlier, the fact that our penalty has been canceled. We see it as we live daily that the power of sin is weakening. The closer we grow to the Lord and the closer we walk with him, we have hope and confidence that the very presence of sin will be banished from God's new creation when the Lord returns. His victory is secure. And so though we walk in a in a frustrating world, Though we let ourselves down and we let others down, we know, we have hope that we will be completely free to do what God designed us to do when the Lord returns. We will worship God forever. If we're trying to figure out how it all works now, how life works, wisdom, the scheme of things, we're going to be looking for a long time, and eventually we're going to join in Bono's lament that, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Moreover, we're not always going to like what we find instead. It's going to be hard. But if in our attempt to sort it all out, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who can figure it out, the one who is at work in the midst of the mess and the chaos, we will find hope, we will find perspective, and we will find joy even amid the hardship Because we find Jesus and the reward that we have in him.